Hi and welcome to Authorise, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier and today I'll be talking to a man uh, with a history in writing through his family and a a most interesting story to tell you too. And uh, he has a new book out to talk about as well called Hands Down. So we'll uh, catch up with Felix Francis in just a moment. But a reminder about our podcast partners, that is CSCG, how are you travelling financially in 2023 so far? How are you looking heading into the future? How would you like to look? They're the questions that we ask ourselves about our finances. And I'm happy to say that the people at CSCG have the answers for you. They can help direct you where you want to go and uh, set you in the right direction to achieve those financial goals that we all talk about. So why don't you give them a call? Double nine seven four eight triple three. Simple as that. Or jump on the website and uh, have a look at uh, the people you'll be dealing with and the services they offer. CSCG.com.au. Double nine seven four eight triple three. They're terrific people to deal with. Felix Francis has a very famous father, Dick Francis. Of course, a well-known jockey in his time. Uh, in fact, uh, probably one of the most famous races of all time was the nineteen fifty-six Grand National which he didn't win, and you'll find out about that uh, in the podcast. Dick, of course, became a very famous and uh, prolific uh, writer of crime fiction based around the racing industry, Uh, and his son Felix has followed in his footsteps, uh, literally, Uh, and we'll find out how that happened and uh, how he felt about uh, becoming, I guess, the next Dick Francis, but still certainly being uh, Felix Francis, a writer in his own right. So uh, let's untangle all that uh, all that little web I've just weaved for you and talk about his uh, his new book, his latest book, Hands Down, uh, with the author himself, uh, the very famous son of Dick Francis, Felix Francis. What's your fondness of the of the racing game, given your heritage? Well, I grew up with it, didn't I? I mean, I knew my way around the around the United Kingdom. I wear the race courses where because I went racing with my father every week. I'm not a great gambler myself. I, I, I learned that very early on. I've never met a poor bookmaker. <laughs> no, I love, I love going to the races. I mean, I went to Ascot uh, for Champions Day. I'm a social racer, really. I like going to the... I mean, I love watching the horses, but I love going to have a good meal and little bits of drink and meet friends and that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful thing for that. Um, what are your what are your memories of your dad? Do you have memories of your dad uh, riding? No, I don't at all. Um, the only film I have of him riding in races is that ill-fated Grand National of 1956. I mean, I watched it... A, I must have watched it a thousand times. I just wish he'd win it once. <laughs> I mean, this is a, the indulgent but quirky story. I do another podcast with, uh, and and part of that is that one of the the blokes on the podcast does a an unusual sporting story and fable that he tells us about that we we don't know anything about. And uh, the week before last, he told us about the the 1956 Grand National, which I wasn't aware of. Obviously, I was aware of your dad as a writer and as a jockey. Uh, but I wasn't aware of that particular racing event because I was born in 56, so it's not one that's in my memory banks. Uh, so he told the story, and I went, wow, that's an amazing story. So then the next morning I got up and I, I started to look at the video of it after we'd done the podcast. And as I'm doing that, I'm looking at my email on my other screen, and up pops the invite, uh, the press release about your book and an invite to have an interview with you. I thought, my God, this is <laughs> this is starting to take on some some things. I'm jumping at the same shadows the horse did. What's going on here? Was- well, I was I was three years old uh, when uh, Devon Lock happened. Yep, and uh, it seemed a 
it seems a bit of a miracle to me that I lived to be four. <laughs> because uh, according to my mother, I would scamper across the carpet in the sitting room at home and I'd throw my hands out in front and my legs out behind and I would shout, I'm being Devon locked, down I go bump. <laughs> and for the rest of her life, my mother, if I did anything which was, you know, a little tactless, she would say, down you go, bump. <laughs> it, it's, rem- it's remarkable footage to look at. That's the first time I'd seen it. And uh, I took my son to, uh, my youngest son, yeah. to uh, Aintree one year for the Grand National. I talked my way out onto the race course right past, past the gateman, and I walked him down the course. And when we got to the point where Devon Locke had collapsed, I, I stopped and turned, turned him round and he looked and he said, I never realised he was so close. Yeah. You know, four and a half mile race and we were 40 yards short. Yeah, yeah, quite staggering. Uh, and I've not, I've not read uh, whether they ascertained whether the horse, did the horse break down or did the horse just, was it fatigue? Was it, was it just literally jumping at shadows? Well, there weren't any shadows because it wasn't a sunny day. But yeah. my father always maintained that it was the noise of the crowd. Oh, wow. I mean, there were a quarter of a million people at Aintree on that day. Good grief. Because it was pre, pre uh, um, it was broadcast only on the radio, not on the te- television. And there were, they were all cheering for the Queen Mother. Yep. And if you watch the film very carefully, the horse pricks his ears just as he's coming up to where he collapses, uh, you know, as if as if to say, you know, I was here last time round, and and uh, my father says the the wall of noise hit him and just frightened him for a second, and down he went. Wow, yeah, it's uh, remarkable, remarkable footage. Well, Dad always said that he probably, um, even though he he was he desperately wanted to have won the Grand National, he probably said that he owed more to. Devon Locke's collapse um, in that race later in life than, than if he'd won. I mean, someone wins the Grand National every year, but to lose it in such spectacular fashion, I mean, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, to do a Devon Locke has uh, gone into the vernacular in England. Yeah. You know? uh, it's, uh, good. it's quite uh, amazing, quite amazing. So in, in 2000, um, you basically joined your dad in what has become the family business. How did that happen? The whole thing was a bit of a mistake. And well, not a mistake, but it was an accident. Yeah. My, I was eight years old when the first book was published, Dead Cert, 1962, and, and there would have been one for the rest, every year for the rest of the millennium. And my parents, who worked on them together, they announced that they were retiring in the year 2000. And my mother's long and happy retirement lasted three weeks. And sadly, she succumbed to, to a heart attack. Oh, God. So it, the last book was a book too far, really. And anyway, uh, so, the, so everyone thought that that would be the end of the Dick Francis novels. Uh, and five years later, 2005, my father's literary agent asked me for lunch, which was not unusual because I was managing my father's affairs and so we had lunch fairly often. And he said to me over lunch, he said, Felix, we've got a real problem. And that is that all your father's books are going to go out of print. There hasn't been a new book for five years. And everyone is forgetting, uh, you know, the, the people who buy books to put on the bookshelves, you know, the corporate 
bookshops, the large bookshops. They're all young, straight out of university, and they don't remember. And he said, what we need is a new hardback just to stimulate the sales of all the backlist. Well, I looked at him and I thought, you're crazy. You know, um, my mum and dad worked on them together. My mum has been dead for five years. My father is now 85 years old and God bless him. He could hardly remember what he had for breakfast, yet alone mm. enough to write a book. Uh, so I said, well, you're not going to get one. And he said, well, actually what I want, what I'm actually here today to do is to ask your permission to ask an existing established crime writer if he will write a Dick Francis novel by so-and-so just to stimulate the backlist and keep them in print. Well, I'd obviously had a few glasses of, uh, of red by then. <laughs> and I said, before you ask anyone else, um, I'd like to have a go at it. And to his eternal credit, he didn't roll his eyes or laugh. <laughs> uh, he simply said, uh, I'll give you two months to write two chapters. And he openly admits that he thought that after those two months, uh, he would get my permission to ask who he wanted. Yep. I went home and I wrote the two chapters. They were long chapters. They ended up being four chapters. I sent them in to him. We had another lunch and he said, well, there's two things you've got to do. One, uh, you better get on and finish it. And secondly, uh, you better go and talk to your father. And I tell you, the first one was easier than the second. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> uh, uh, I went to see my father and I said, uh, I've got a, we need a new hardback. No, he said, I'm retired. And I said, well, you know, uh, it could be a Sid Halley book. You've used Sid Halley three times before, so we could use Sid Halley again. And it could be about race fixing because that was very much in the news at the time because uh, uh, the British champion jockey was about to go on trial for race fixing in, 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 at the Old Bailey yeah. in London. And uh, no, he said. And I said, well, I've got a title. And he said, what title? I said, Under Orders, which I thought was a very good title because it under orders means under starters orders uh, in racing. And also under orders implies that someone else is pulling the strings. He read my two chapters. He got very excited by it. And um, so I got on and finished it. And the book came out uh, in 2006. It came out as a Dick Francis novel. I mean didn't have my name on it anywhere. In yeah. fact, I wasn't allowed to say I'd written it for the, for the next eight years until I got released from the clause in the contract. It was, uh, I mean, it sold, of course it sold. It had Dick Francis on the cover. <laughs> and uh, it went to the top of the bestseller lists in London and, and the United States and around the world. And I was terrified that the reviews would all say, Dick has lost it. But they didn't. They all said, the master is back. Ah, oh, wonderful. The publisher said, right, we want another one. <laughs> so I set about writing the next one, which was called Dead Heat. And uh, the American publishers took fright and thought, it can't come out as a, with only Dick Francis on the cover. I mean, I wanted to have Dick Francis on the cover because if it was there to stimulate the the backlist, which all had Dick Francis on, in my view, it had to have Dick Francis on it. And I thought the second book would be the same, but the American publishers said, no, it's got to have both names on the cover. So it had Dick Francis in big type and underneath in the smallest font they could find and Felix Francis. <laughs> but I wrote it and uh, 
gradually over the years, my name's got bigger and his has got smaller. Still has, even hands down, still has a Dick Francis novel on the front, and that's yeah. my choice because I feel that uh, he is as much a part of of my books as I feel now part of all of his. And uh, two years later, after two years after uh, Under Orders was was published, uh, Penguin Books. Uh, reset, recovered, and reissued all the backlist, and they're still in print. Wow! So I, I must have been doing something right. Yeah, well, you achieved what you actually set it to achieve from the from the very start. But in doing that, gave yourself a, a, a another life, I guess, a different yeah, life. Indeed, I mean, hands down, it's now number sixteen. Wow! And uh, I'm already um, well into number seventeen, uh, which I w- will be out uh, in a year's time. When you started with the first one when you just wrote the two chapters, were you, were you trying to channel your dad? Did you write in a style that you thought was him and has that changed over the years? Well, there were certain aspects that I did which made it look like it was him. I wrote in the first-person narrative, which he'd always, always done, and there were certain phrases and stuff, but it wasn't really difficult. I mean, I'd grown up with these um, I started reading them when I was about 12 and had caught up quickly and I had read them as they were written all the way through. And, and my mother was a great believer in the rhythm of the sentence and she had discussed this with me uh, over many years. And so I, uh, um, I, I, I wouldn't say I, I... I suppose I did purposely copy the style to start with, but now I feel it's my style and I don't copy it um, consciously anymore. I just write as I write. Has it been limiting uh, in any in any way for you as a writer? Um, well, I suppose that, that it is limiting insofar that they've all got horses in there somewhere. <laughs> I mean, they're not about horses. I mean, some people write to me or ring me up or speak to me and say, I don't read your books because they're all about horses. They're not about horses. They're about people. I mean, horse racing is simply the canvas uh, on which I paint the story. And uh, it's a wonderful canvas because, you know, there is uh, ample opportunity for a bit of skullduggery. Uh, there's a lot of money floating around, a lot of cash. And there are always those who are trying to tip the odds in their favour uh, by fair means or foul, usually foul in my books. Um, and uh, racing is is one is one of those sports which attracts people from every socioeconomic strata in, in society. You know, from in England, of course, from royalty uh, down to the man in the street. And everyone, is, everyone thinks they, they've got an edge on, on uh, everyone else. And, uh, and uh, so it's, it's, it's a competitive, very competitive sport. And it lends itself wonderfully for... Mystery writing. Yeah, it's full of temptations and rich characters, which is a, a combination that works beautifully, doesn't it? It does indeed, yes. What, what, what more could an author of a mystery want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, and when you throw money into, uh, into the equation, there, and lots of it, 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 it adds, to the, adds to the pot. I've just uh, started the, the next book, and it's, um, my main character is an auctioneer uh, selling horses at uh, the yearling sales. Uh, I've written a piece at the beginning which says that racing, horse racing and gambling have always been uh, intertwined. They always have been, always will be. But the biggest gambles in racing don't occur with a bookmaker 
um, or in the betting shops. The biggest gambles take place in the sales ring where people spend uh, millions uh, mm. on untried, untested, even unridden horses in the hope that they will turn out to be a world beater and then a sire of uh, future generations of world beaters. I mean, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There was a horse called Justify, uh, which was sold at Keeneland sale in 2016 uh, for half a million dollars. Uh, it uh, only ran in six races. Uh, it won all six of them, including the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes to become only the 14th horse in history to win the American Triple Crown. And its earnings on the track were $3.8 million. But that is that pales into insignificance compared to the $150 million <laughs> it's expected to earn in stud fees over its career, which means that the horse is worth six times its own weight in pure gold. Wow. Uh, on the other hand, a horse called Snaffy Dancer uh, was sold back at the same sales back in the 1980s for $10.8 million, a record at the time. It's worth $30 million US dollars today. Uh, it never got to a race course because it was, quote, embarrassingly slow. Uh -huh. So it was sent to stud and it was found to have fertility problems. It only ever sired four foals and none of them won a race. And I said, that's gambling. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? That's what the real money is. Tell us about, you mentioned uh, the main character in the, in the new book in, uh, in Hands Down, uh, Sid Halley earlier. He's, he's a recurring character. He's now appeared six times, but that's six times in 55 books. So he doesn't appear every time. Yeah. There's usually a long gap between. And Sid has the um, advantage that he doesn't grow old as quickly as the rest of us. I mean, he was in his... 30s in 1965, and, and now he's, at, he's just nearing 50, some 60 <laughs> years later, and don't we all wish that was the case. Um, he's an ex-jockey, ex-champion jockey. He lost his hand as a result of a racing fall uh, back in 1965. Uh, the racing fall did a lot of damage, and then a sadistic villain did the rest of the damage with the aid of a, an iron poker. So for quite a number of, of Books. He had a, a myelectric uh, prosthesis. Oh. But um, when he last appeared in Refusal back in 2013, and a lot of the book was spent on with him uh, wondering whether he uh, should or should not have a hand transplant. So in Hands Down, he's had the hand transplant, and so this gives me, gave me a lot more <laughs> things to fill the pages <laughs> with. But it isn't all good because his, um, his marriage is now in trouble because his wife, Marina, feels that every time uh, he touches her with his new hand that she's being groped by a stranger. Oh, goodness. And uh, so it, it's, I mean, my, my publisher in, in England uh, described it, uh, the book uh, at, a, at a launch party, he described it as a love story with a mystery uh, added on top, and and that's exactly what I wanted. So Sid is trying to work out what's going on at the same time, trying to save his marriage. Yeah. When you finish a book like Hands Down, do you do you when you've completed, sort of think, and what would my old man think about this? 
Do you do that as part of your kind of uh, oh, yes. finishing? Of course. I mean, I love it when people say, and some of the reviews, I mean, the reviews of this book have been, I mean, they've been so good, I, I could have written them myself. <laughs> but I, I, yes, I do. I and mean, I love it when people say that, you know, they're as good as my father's and, and people say you can't see the join. And that, that is uh, very um, pleasing. When I started writing, I had a sort of informal committee of my father's past editor, past publisher, and the literary agent. And they would read it for the first two or three books I wrote. They would read the book, and, and I said to them specifically, if you don't think this is up to standard and would in any way uh, damage the reputation of my father, then it won't see the light of day as a Dick Francis novel. And fortunately, um, all of them said that it, it was up to standard. And in fact, I did say to my agent once, I wonder what my mother and father would think. And he said, it was after my father died, and he said, well, don't be stupid. You're giving your father immortality. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not sure that, that is true, but, it is, but I certainly uh, kept the, the books alive and... And that, that is something I'm really rather proud of. Has it been a surprisingly joyful experience for you to do it? It's always joyful when the book is finished. Yeah. yeah. At the moment, I am, I'm, I'm behind where I should be in the new book. I spend a lot of time at night awake trying to think what I'm going to, what the, how the story will develop. And it's hard work. I mean, it's a job of work. People say, do you wait for inspiration? Well, if I waiting for inspiration. It would never get written. It is simply a job of work and you have to sit down and, and, and grind it out. And, um, uh, but it's always lovely when it's finished, provided it, it's gone well. Yeah. So far, touch wood, uh, it has gone well. Is there a third generation of Francis writers looming? Um, I don't know. I have two sons. Uh, one, of them is, one of them lives here in Melbourne. He's a solicitor, Matthew. And one lives in England. He's in the. He flies helicopters for the British Army. Um, and I don't think either of those are likely. But it may be, maybe it would skip a generation. I've got a, a grandson um, here in, in in Australia in Melbourne, and um, he's only nine years old at the moment. But uh, uh, he's pretty interested in creative writing. So we'll see. We'll see. Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? It'd be, uh, I guess, the fairy tale ending to uh, to it. But uh, congratulations on your work. I mean, obviously, you, you came with a body of work to, to follow up, which I imagine would have been, uh, times would have been uh, hard to deal with and at other times would have been good to deal with. But uh, you, you, Sometimes you, it's been hard um, to deal with. A lot of, quite a few people have said they don't read my books because they don't want to spoil the memory of my father's. And I said, well, you know, that's nonsense because... Uh, I think they're, well, obviously, I think they're as, as good, and, but lots of people do as well. Uh, other people say to me, and how many plots did your father leave you? Oh. Which uh, uh, is, uh, the answer was zero. I mean, uh, I have to think of the new plot, and that in itself is, gets more and more difficult year on year because uh. not only can't I repeat anything I've done, uh, in the last 16, but I can't even repeat anything that's been done in the years before because otherwise people will write uh, and say so. Uh, and therefore, 
it gets increasingly difficult to, to think up a storyline, um, and not least because the uh, racing authorities, when I write a storyline, they, they have a habit of closing off the loophole I've found uh, <laughs> to make sure that people don't do in reality what I've got in them doing in the pages. Are you here scouting uh, possible, um, you know, uh, people, characters, uh, venues? Uh... Always, always uh, looking for characters. People, I go to so many different events. I mean, I was at a dinner the other night in London before I came away and the person sat next to me and said, well, how do you come up with a plot? So I sort of leaned back and I looked behind them and I said, well, I go for dinners and see whether anyone has a knife between their shoulder blades. <laughs> I mean, with the previous book to, to Hands Down, uh, the book I wrote before that was called Iced, and it was about uh, white turf racing uh, in Switzerland on the frozen lake at St. Moritz. And I um, was invited, well, I, I got myself invited to go to white turf to see it. And I went out there and I spent the morning looking at the Cresta Run, which is a three-quarter long mile ice chute where you go down on, to, on a toboggan head first. And, um, I mean, you've got to be crazy to do it. Bloody um, oath. And I, want, and I said to the concierge in the hotel, where is the crest to run? He said, oh, it's, it's about 150 metres down the road. So I thought, right, well, I'll go down there. And I walked down there. And lo and behold, there was a competition going on. And the competition was called... The Grand National. (laughs) And I I went in and I watched this and I chatted to some of the people who'd taken part in it and afterwards and had a a bit of uh, glue vine on the balcony in the uh, the sunshine and the freezing conditions. And by lunchtime, I was beginning to to put a storyline together and... um, and, and, and so that was a, a visit well worth it. And sometimes it just happens in the, the strangest circumstances. Yeah. And I, I found that it very difficult during the pandemic, during lockdowns, because I get my inspiration from going to places and seeing things. So I found it very hard. I mean, people think that, oh, well, if you were in lockdown, you, you, you probably wrote two or three books. And I said, no, it's more difficult to to do this when you can't actually go and see things. And I remember on one occasion I hadn't got the end of the book very well and I went to Kempton Park Races uh, in, in, and I talked someone into letting me go wherever I wanted in the race course and we ended up on the, right on the, on the roof, outside on the roof of the, of the big grandstand and suddenly I found that I had the, the place where the end of the book was going uh, to take place. And, and so those sort of things um, help a lot to, uh, to go and see things. And Congratulations on Hands Down, and we look forward to many, many more in the future. Well, thank you, Kevin. I hope that, that uh, readers enjoy it. Again, I say that if you, you've read any of Dad's, give me a go. I, think you'll, uh, I, I don't think you'll be disappointed with Hands Down. Uh, certainly, the reviews that have been in the, uh, on Amazon and in the newspaper about it have, have all been uh, glowing. So I must be doing something right. Absolutely. Good on you, Felix. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Kevin. Bye-bye. Take care. Cheers.
My thanks to Felix. A wonderful chat and it was great to catch up with him when he was in town uh, at the end of last year for the uh, for the Spring Racing Carnival. Uh, quite a character and uh, certainly a prolific writer like his dad was. Now, I want to remind you about our terrific uh, podcast partners. As I mentioned at the start of uh, this podcast, if you haven't got your financial goals sorted out for 2023, pick up the phone, dial double nine seven four eight triple three. talk to the team at CSCG, they'll help you out. Uh, CSCG.com.au is the website, so check that out as well, Double nine seven four eight triple three. Uh, until the next time, hope you enjoyed this edition of the Authorised Podcast. Plenty more, wherever you found this one, there's dozens of them there with some great authors uh, telling some great stories about some terrific books. Uh, so uh, have a listen to the podcast and read a few books and I'll talk to you again soon on Authorised. Authorised.